You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. So happy Easter, first of all. What I was saying was, um, I don't know if you have an app on your phone or something that can tell you where your friends and your family are. This is becoming increasingly common in phones and in different apps where you can locate people. And it recently freaked out my husband because he was in town and my girls were waiting for him to come home. And when he eventually came home, they said, why did you spend so long in Decathlon? And if you know my husband, you'll know that he does not really like shopping at all. But if he's to be found anywhere for any length of time, it would be somewhere that sells sports equipment. But it's not just apps on our phone. If we're trying to find someone, we can just give them a wee text or call them and find out exactly where they're at. Where they're at. But if you're old like me and can remember the good old days before mobile phones, we didn't have anything like that. And if you were meeting someone, you just had to be where you'd arranged to meet them. And if you're running late, you hoped that they would wait for you. Sometimes I would be at an after-school activity and my mum maybe couldn't pick me up exactly when the activity finished. And so she would have this phrase, she would just say to me, just start walking and I'll meet you where you're at. And I'll meet you where you're at simply meant that she knew the route that I would take from school to home. She knew the journey that I was on and she knew that at any point in that journey she could meet me. And you might be thinking, well, what has that got to do with Easter? Are you suggesting that we track Jesus on snap maps or something? I'm not suggesting that. But what I'm suggesting is, as I've reflected on Easter the last couple of weeks, what I've thought is that it means a lot of things. The risen Jesus means that we can have our sins forgiven. It means that he carried our burdens on the cross. It means that we can live eternally with him. But it also means that he meets us where we're at. We no longer need to take an animal to the temple to have it sacrificed, to get a priest involved in declaring us clean or unclean. We don't need to do anything like that because Jesus has paid it all. Our debts have been paid and we are free to live in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. He meets us where we're at. So I thought this morning we would look at John's gospel and we'd look at his account of three different people where Jesus met them, where they were at, and we'll see what we can learn from them. So first of all, we're going to read John chapter 20 from verse 1, and we're going to be looking at the character of Mary Magdalene. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone, the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. When John writes that, he simply means himself. That's how he talked about himself, the disciple who Jesus loved. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that wee bit. John's just saying, okay, Peter may have walked on water, but I was the faster runner. I want you to know that. He bent over looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. 
the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them the things that he had said. She told them that he had said these things to her. A beautiful encounter of Mary and Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus. But who was Mary Magdalene? Well, we first meet her in Luke chapter 8. Um, reading from verses 1 to 3, it says, After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, that's the twelve disciples, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out of. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So what we can learn about Mary is that she was a woman from Magdala. Her surname wasn't Magdalene, surprise, surprise. She was probably wealthy, because these verses tell us that she, along with the other women, supported Jesus out of her own means. And she followed Jesus from town to town, village to village. It also tells us that she had had seven demons cast out of her. Now, when we read the word, the number seven in the Bible, it usually indicates something that is complete or something that is full. For example, we have seven days in the week. We have seven colors in the rainbow. We have seven notes in a musical scale. So when we read that Mary had seven demons, that we can understand from that, that she was completely full of demons. Her life was utterly controlled by evil and darkness until she met Jesus and Jesus set her completely free. Can you imagine the depth of Mary's gratitude to Jesus, having her life totally transformed and set free by him? And we see the depth of her gratitude in her actions. What she, her gratitude is evident by what she does. She follows Jesus everywhere. She was with him at the cross. She was there when he was buried and she's the first to go to the tomb. So we see her eager on the first morning um, that she can. She goes to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. John's gospel doesn't tell us, but there were other women with her, but Mary's name was mentioned first. Her name's always mentioned first among the women. 
indicating that she was the leader. So you could just imagine, okay, everybody, we've got to get up as soon as we can, and we've got to go and anoint Jesus' body. He did this for two reasons. One reason was to prevent the smell of decay of the dead body. And the other reason was a final act of loving devotion to that person. So again, Mary was just utterly devoted to Jesus. She knew what she had to do. She knew what she wanted to do, what her heart wanted to do was to honour Jesus and to anoint his body. Mark's gospel tell us, tells us that they have this unresolved question of who's going to roll the stone away? Because it also tells us that Mary was there when Jesus was put into the tomb. She knew the size of the stone that was put there. She knew that they weren't going to be able to move it. But when they get there, that question isn't an issue anymore because the stone had been rolled away. But they're confused, they're upset, they don't understand Jesus' body isn't there. So they run back and they tell Peter and John. They run back with her. She must have been fit as well as all her other attributes. And um, Peter and John, they look into the, the tomb and they see right enough, the body isn't there. And then they go back home. But Mary, still in devotion to Jesus, stays at the tomb. When she peers in, she sees a couple of angels. They ask her why she's crying. And she says this lovely sentence. She says, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. And to me, that sentence just sums up Mary's relationship with Jesus. He wasn't just her friend. He wasn't just her teacher. He was her Lord. She worshipped him and she recognised him to be the Messiah. And I want to suggest to you today that the single most important question you can answer in your life is what do you call Jesus? Do you, like Mary, call him your Lord? Do you worship him? Do you allow him to be Lord of your life? Because if you call him Lord, it determines how you live in this life and how you live in the life to come. I'm going to leave that thought with you and we'll come back to that later on. So she said this to the angels and then we see this lovely encounter where Jesus calls her name. She doesn't recognise Jesus initially. We don't know why, but some encounters we read of the risen Jesus with other people, they don't recognise him instantly. But he rec she, she recognises when he calls her name. He calls Mary. She turns to him and she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. She falls at his feet and Matthew's gospel tells us that she clasps onto his feet and that she worships him. Mary's devotion to Jesus meant that he met her where she was at. He met her in her devotion. And she was then the first person to see the risen Jesus. She was the first person to touch him, to talk to him, to worship him and to tell him, to tell others that he was alive. What an amazing privilege she had because Jesus met her in her devotion to him. But you might be thinking, well, of course Jesus met with Mary. She was utterly devoted. Why wouldn't he choose Mary to meet first? Why wouldn't he choose to meet with Mary when she was so devoted to him? Do we have to be as devoted as Mary? What if we're not as devoted as Mary? Well, let's look at somebody else. Case study number two. We're going to look at Thomas. So Thomas was one of the 12 disciples and he hadn't been with the disciples when Jesus had appeared to them at another occasion. So let's look at John chapter 20, a wee bit further on in the chapter, verse 24. Now Thomas, 
also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. So Peter was a disciple. He'd heard that, the, that Jesus was alive, but he said, nope, I'm not going to believe that unless I can see the scars, unless I can put my finger where the nails were unless I can put my hand into his side. Now that is pretty gross. But Jesus was pierced on the cross. It said a spear went into his side and blood and water poured out. And Thomas wants to put his hand into Jesus' side, which is, as I said, pretty gross. But that's his requirement for believing in the risen Jesus. And I wonder if you can identify with Thomas. I wonder if you have doubts. I wonder if you're watching today and you think, well, I don't believe Jesus was the son of God. I don't believe that he died and rose again. I don't believe that he did that for me. I don't believe that he can make a difference in my life. What about this? What about that? All these doubts, doubts are normal. They creep into our head all the time. Well, let me tell you that Jesus meets you where you're at. Just as he met Thomas, it says a week later, after Thomas had said, I need these things to believe in Jesus. Jesus appears to Thomas. He comes into a locked room and he says to Thomas, hey buddy, if you want to do this, if you want to touch my hands, if you want to touch where the nails were, if you want to reach out and put your hand into my pierced side, go ahead. He meets the exact requirements that Thomas needed to believe famous quote from an Archbishop of Canterbury from the 11th century was that I believe in order to understand. And so often with life, we try and understand everything before we can believe it. But with faith, it's the other way around. Once we believe, more understanding is given and we start to understand more and more. Sadly for Thomas, his name will always be synonymous with doubting. But to me, that gives me great hope because there are times in my life where I have doubts. Sometimes I have small doubts. Sometimes I have massive doubts. And I know that Jesus meets me where I'm at. He meets you where you're at. He doesn't wait for us to be utterly devoted to him like Mary was. He meets us in our devotion. He meets us in our doubts. And so if you're doubting Jesus today, I just want to challenge you. Why don't you be like Thomas? Why don't you say, these are the things I need, Lord, to believe in you. And watch out for him this week. Why don't you put, put things on the table to God and say, I don't believe these things. Can you show me that you're real and look out for him this week? Because Jesus meets us where we're at. He meets us when we're doubting. We're going to look at one more case study, another person, and we're going to look at another D. We've looked at the devoted We've looked at the doubtful. Now we're going to look at a denier. So we've got a 3D talk. Um, Peter. 
all four Gospels tells us, tell us that on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times as he sat round a fire. He must have thought that he'd totally blown it. Jesus knew that Peter had denied him. In fact, he'd predicted that he would deny him. Peter had been one of Jesus' closest friends. He'd walked on water with Jesus. He'd been with him for three years of his ministry. He'd seen many miracles. He'd seen um, him raise people from the dead. He had seen um, the transfiguration of Jesus when he'd seen him glorified. He'd heard God's voice speak over Jesus. Peter had himself declared that Jesus was the Messiah. But when the pressure was on, Peter denied him. When Jesus predicted Peter's denial in Mark 14, it says, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And yet he did three times. And then he weeps bitterly as he realized the depth of his betrayal. I wonder if you can identify with Peter. I wonder if you think, <clears throat> excuse me, I wonder if you think you have blown it. Excuse me. I wonder if you think there are things that you've done that are totally unforgivable. I wonder if you think if Jesus knew that about me, he would never forgive me. He'd never want anything to do with me. Well, let me tell you, Jesus does know. Just as Jesus knew that Peter denied him, he knows all the things you've done, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But the beauty of the empty tomb means that Jesus wants to meet you where you're at. You've never blown it so much that Jesus doesn't want to or can't meet you where you're at. In John 21, the next chapter on, we read of another encounter where Jesus meets with his disciples. Peter and some of his uh, the other disciples had gone out fishing. They'd been fishing all night and they hadn't caught a thing. And then in the morning, they see a man on the shore. It's Jesus, but again, they don't recognize him initially. And he says to them, have you caught anything, friends? And they say, no, we haven't caught a thing. And he says, cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat. So they do that. And we read that they catch 153 fish in that catch. They recognize it's Jesus and they go ashore. Jesus has already made a fire and prepared breakfast for them. And then we read this dialogue in John 21, verse 15. When they'd finished eating... Jesus said to Simon Peter, sometimes he called Jesus Peter, sometimes Simon. So we're talking about the same person here. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus had made breakfast for Peter around a fire. The same setting that Peter had denied Jesus around a fire. And he gives them the opportunity, not just once, but three times to tell Jesus that he loves him. What Jesus is doing here is he's restoring Peter 
He's turning his denial back into a declaration of love for his Lord Jesus. He meets Jesus. He meets Peter. Where he's at? In his denial, in his brokenness, in his shame. But Jesus isn't in the business of shame. Jesus is in the business of restoration. I wonder if you noticed that, Pete, that Jesus doesn't say to Peter, hey, Peter, remember I said that you'd deny me and you said emphatically that you wouldn't and then you did three times. That, was, that wasn't a very good friendship, was it? He doesn't say, hey, Peter, that was my darkest hour and you denied me three times and then you ran away. That was pretty horrid. He doesn't mention it at all because Jesus isn't interested in our past. He's dealt with that on the cross. He's interested in our future. He also doesn't say, well, Peter was pretty unreliable in that, so I'm not going to give him any jobs for the future, or I'm certainly not going to give him any jobs of importance. He asks him to feed his sheep. He asks him to look after his lambs. What he's asking him to do is, Peter, will you build my church? Will you look after my people? And that is what Peter does. A few weeks later, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, he starts to preach boldly. He starts to build the church. You see, Jesus isn't interested in our shame, but he is interested in our restoration. And he has a future for us that isn't dependent on our past. He doesn't say that you are what you did. He says, you are what I say you are. And that is a masterpiece. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. He has a plan for your future that doesn't depend on your past. He's not in the business of shame, but of restoration. And if you've blown it, believe me, I blow it on a daily basis. Jesus meets you where you're at. He meets us when we're devoted. He meets us when we're doubtful. He meets us when we've denied him. And not just that, but he meets us when we're happy. He meets us when we're sad. He meets us when we're at the end of our tether. He meets us in the good, the bad and the ugly. And that's what having a risen saviour means. It means that he loves us because he loves us. There's nothing that we can do to make, us, to make him love us more. Nothing we can do that makes him, us, him love us less. He meets us where we're at. There's nowhere we can go or no situation we can be in where Jesus can't meet us. And when we invite him to be the Lord of our lives, when we call him Lord, like Mary did, like Thomas did, like Peter did, he comes and he lives in us and he pours his Holy Spirit into our lives, which means we are carriers of Jesus, which means that we can take Jesus to others. We can take Jesus into our homes, we can take Jesus to our families. We can take Jesus into our schools, into our workplaces, into our communities. Wherever God has placed you, you can be a carrier of Jesus into that situation. And there are many, many broken people in the world that Jesus wants to bring restoration to. And he wants to use you. So if you're a believer in Jesus, if you call him Lord, would you look out for opportunities this week where you can be a carrier of Jesus to people? Would you look out for a situation where you can pray for someone, where you can bring a word of hope, where you can maybe give them a scripture from the Bible that will bring encouragement, where you can invite them to church, 
when you can simply just be with them in their hour of need? Would you ask Jesus this week for opportunities to be a carrier of Jesus to these people? And if you don't know Jesus, I just want to encourage you this morning, as I said earlier, the most important question you can answer in your life is what do you do with the risen Jesus? Do you call him Lord? And if you want to do that today, I'm just going to say a simple prayer. As Jesus meets you where you're at, he meets you as you're watching this. He's ready. You don't need to be in a certain position, a certain place, certain state of mind. He'll meet you wherever you're at. So if you want to give your life to Jesus today and call him Lord, you can say this prayer along with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross. I thank you that you didn't stay dead. I thank you that you overcame death and that you are alive and that you did that for me. I'm sorry that I haven't lived my life with you and for you. I'm sorry I haven't called you Lord until now and I want that to change. Please come into my life. Please be Lord of my life and guide me and walk with me for the rest of this journey. Amen. And if you've prayed that prayer today, I'd love to hear from you. Please contact me at onlinepastor at catalyst.vin. It's the most important decision you can ever make.